Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. I almost hate to use the word educational. Charles Staley. And uh, I failed phys ed and English all the way through high school. Phil Stevens. I guess I'm kind of the, uh, the dark force here. And Rob Fortress Fortney. But there really is no secret. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, folks. Rob Fortress Fortney, former editor of uh, Muscle Mike International, former competitive bodybuilder and strength training enthusiast. And welcome, everybody. Charles Staley here, author of Muscle Logic, creator of Escalating Density Training, and I am a master's level competitive weightlifter. Uh, Phil Stevens, strength coach and uh, strength athlete kind of across the board in strongman, powerlifting, island games, yada, yada, and uh, creator of liftforhope.org. Uh, everybody check it out, L-I-F-T, number four, H-O-P-E dot O-R-G. Wow, that was pretty clear. Um, <laughs> all right, folks, we have a, an esteemed guest here today with us today, Dr. Morrow DePasquale. Um, welcome, Morrow. Thank you. Um, now, this is a guy that's kind of got credentials coming out the yin yang here. I mean, you you have uh, so many credentials, um, both as as a in the professional realm and certainly as a sports uh, sport an athlete. Um, almost too many too many to uh, kind of mention. But but why don't you give our um, listeners who who um, aren't familiar with you um, a little rundown on on your uh, maybe I guess start out your, with your professional credentials. Um, yeah, I'm a medical uh, doctor. Um, mm. I have uh, uh, backing in uh, genetics and uh, molecular biochemistry. After finishing those courses in university, I went on to, uh, to medicine, finished my medical degree, and practiced basically sports medicine and uh, nutritional aspects of sports medicine, um, integrative aspects uh, for the last, I don't know, forever, 40 years anyways. Um, during that time, I uh, competed in powerlifting and uh was world champion uh, in the 148-pound uh, class and uh, just won just about everything that was to win as far as powerlifting, including the North Americans, the Pan Americans, the Worlds, um, Canadian champion eight times, etc. What uh, were your also best lifts? Sorry. Um, sorry 722, 722 squat, 722 deadlift, and uh, about a 412 bench. Wow. That was at 165. Absolutely, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I kind of cut in there, but keep going. <laughs> you got more. To no, talk no, it's all right. It's all right. Yeah, I mean, I've been writing uh, for forever, for decades. Um, I've done several books, and uh, both on on ergogenic aids, uh, including uh, anabolic steroids, uh, growth hormone, other compounds. A lot of work on um, uh, drug testing of athletes, uh, and a, a lot of work on nutrition, nutritional supplements. I have a nutritional supplement company. And I also sell my books, some of my books, uh, on site of metabolicdiet.com. And uh, lately I've uh, just put out a new newsletter, which is the uh, Elite Performance Newsletter at www.eliteperformancenewsletter.com. It's free. Um, I've only done two so far, and the third one I'm working on. The second Elite Performance Newsletter was 160 pages. So what I got from people was, this isn't a newsletter, this is a friggin' book. <laughs> now, one of the, I mean, one of the questions that we ask um, pretty much all our guests is, uh, and I think it's people who are listening is, how did you get involved in the whole world of you know fitness and strength training and all this type of thing? Well, I got involved very very young. When I was uh, 13, I uh, showed an interest in weights and in, in bodybuilding. Um, started training actually when I was uh, 13, turning to 14. Um, got into powerlifting because I, I enjoyed the power aspect, the strength aspect. I was always naturally strong and uh, just carried on from there. I, I never competed in, in, in any other sport. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say that. In university, uh, I competed uh, among the university teams in uh, gymnastics, and my specialty was the rings, and uh, also in wrestling, where I wrestled. And I actually came third in Canada after wrestling only two years. So I, I did a lot of sports, but then I, I centered on powerlifting um, for various reasons. One, I could do it without a lot of people around, because since I was practicing out in the country, my medical practice was in the country, 
And uh, secondly, it, it just tied in with everything I was interested in, uh, nutrition, the, the performance aspect, and I've just carried on since then. Now, um, again, you said you've won world champions and so forth. Um, at what point and, and where, how did you make the decision to uh, retire from competitive powerlifting? Well, you know, <laughs> there's a time. There's a time when, when you're at your prime for any, for any one thing, as far as I'm concerned. And with powerlifting, I kind of pretty well reached it after competing for over a decade. Um, I also uh, tore a bicep about two years before I stopped competing, and I just naturally stopped competing, kept up my workouts and everything, and uh, went on to, to, to do more writing and, and more work on starting my own businesses as far as uh, you know, nutrition and uh, nutritional supplements and writing, again, uh, as I mentioned. So it, uh, was, a natural, it was a natural stoppage. It, it really didn't bother me. I never really missed a competition. Was it your interest in like um, physical performance and the human body and this type of thing that kind of led you into uh, the medical field? Yeah, I, I think that was part of it. Um, you know, when I was young, uh, you know, I was I was kind of sickly when I was young, and I think I got interested in, in dealing with, you know, the issues that I had. Um, also, I, you know, I, I had a general wish to to help. To you know, I was kind of an empathic kind of guy, so. You know, medicine was a natural for me. Actually, before medicine, I actually went into uh, into, into a, a research level um, university, four years university, and I was supposed to be primed for research. But I, even though I, I did well, and you know, I came near the top of the class, et cetera, there was only 30 people in the class because it was a very exclusive class. Uh, I decided at that point to go into medicine and then carry on from there as far as my interest in, you know, nutrition, uh, physical performance, et cetera. Right. So what, what, well, you you also are have been and and are still on several several boards. I mean, you were uh, um, involved, of course, with the uh, WBF, the World Bodybuilding Federation, back when that was around, and you've the uh, World Wrestling Entertainment, which was the WBF at that point. Um, how did all those things come come along? Well, when I was uh, back back in the uh, uh, late seventies, uh, I was the uh, medical chairman for the International Powerlifting Federation, and. Um, I held that post for about uh, eight years, and I was also on, on, on the committee for a number of years, uh, even after that. And back in, in the late 70s, we thought, well, you know, for powerlifting to become an Olympic sport, which is what we were working towards, we need to get a drug testing program in place. So I initiated the drug testing in powerlifting, carried it out. We had our first testing done in 1980, and from there on, we've been, we've been doing that aspect of, of drug testing and powerlifting. So it was kind of... Uh, all the aspects of, of the things I was interested in came naturally from my interest in weights and nutrition when I was very young. You know, so one thing led to another, and as I got higher up in the uh, both the bureaucratic and the the athlete hierarchy, uh, my interest grew, and eventually, you know, resulted in what I'm doing today. Right, right. Um, so, what, what what do you uh, currently have on the burner? I know you say on your site that you're talking that you're uh, currently writing another book, I believe. Yeah, I'm actually working on a couple of books, um, but I'm spending more time with my grand, more time with my grandkids than I am writing books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a time for everything, as I said earlier. Um, the grandkids are important. If you look at uh, at metabolicdiet.com on Facebook, you can see a picture of of the two of them, um, <laughs> and and, and well, one of them one a picture of, of Sydney on my shoulders, and you know the other one we're on, we're in a boat. It's it's very important in my view to to um, nurture the grandkids and, and to give them the time and, and not to be involved in so many things that you really can't, when they come, you really can't drop everything and just spend total time with them. Um, other than that, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on a couple of books, yeah, and, and, you know, I've got about six books that are unfinished, which I hope to, you know, finish over the next couple of years. Uh, the Elite Performance Newsletter is a big issue because I really want to present a lot of the ideas and a lot of feelings I have about current events and about various issues uh, in nutrition and bodybuilding and, and uh, uh, Olympic sports, etc. So I work a fair amount on that. Plus, I have my business, my nutritional supplement business, and books and, and other things that I sell. Um, so that keeps me pretty busy. Uh, for people who are just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Mauro De Pasquale. And uh, again, uh, your, your, your site, MauroDePasquale.com, um, is that two different sites? Because you have a metabolicdiet.com as well, correct? Metabolicdiet.com, <clears throat> excuse me, is the main site. Um, okay. I've got about a hundred sites. 
But, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, <laughs> I do, I do, yeah, I do actually. I, you wouldn't believe some of the sites that were <laughs> that I will be developing. Hey, Phil, um, put it on your to-do list to register me uh, 34 more domains, okay? Uh, yeah, you got it. Actually, I've had people approach me lately wanting to buy various domains that I have. <laughs> Do you find that, um, I mean, having, having having achieved such a high-level powerlifting and so forth in the years past, do you, do you find now that um, for all your efforts and your, all your uh, kind of um, uh, physical stresses that were involved in that, that that's um, done anything to kind of hinder um, you in these years of your life, or, or do you still reap the benefits of, of the strength that you gained back then? No, I still reap the benefits. Uh, I, I, I'll be 65 um, in September, September 23rd, and I don't take any medication. I don't take any pills. Mm-hmm. I don't have any health problems. Um, I can still lift that. You know, obviously, I'm not lifting as much as I used to lift. I mean, as you get older, you have to adjust. You don't want to be uh, in, like in competitive years. But I can still squat 500, deadlift 550, and bench 350 mm-hmm. um, yeah. any time at all. Right. How, what what so is your? Not, you know, but but I haven't been working on actually competing because that, that that part of my life, the competition aspect, I did it very heavy and very concentrated, put all my time and energy into it for a long period of time, and then that was behind me. On to other things. What year was it that you retired? Eighty-four. Eighty-four. Okay. Um, what, what is your current like uh, fitness regime like? I mean, obviously, like you said, you incorporate resistance training and so forth. But do you now kind of a uh, um, cross train with more different type of type of activities, or, or are you still? Yeah. Oh, strong? definitely. I uh, I bicycle a lot. I do okay. twenty-five, thirty miles a day. Oh wow. Um, and uh, you know, I I lift well. Usually twice a week, sometimes three times a week, and uh, you know I do a whole body routine. I stick a lot to the powerlifting because those are the lifts I know, uh, the lifts that I found were most effective for me as far as my strength and, and etc. Um, mm-hmm. So that I, I do fairly round routines. You know, I mean, uh, I just came back from a 25 mile bike ride. Um, wow. You can probably tell, I'm still breathing a little heavy from that. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so you know I try and do a little of everything, and my my. Um, I keep track of my of my health and my pulse and, and, and pressure and stuff like that. My blood pressure runs about 115 to about 68. Um, so you know, I'm 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 really very healthy, no problems at all. And uh, the powerlifting actually, I think, is you know, doing the heavy weights, etc. I was always very careful, very precise. Uh, I didn't have a lot of injuries. I tore I tore a bicep once, um, and that was basically due to overtraining prior to Worlds. And um, you know, I had no I have no issues now. Okay, that's great. Um, okay, well, again, people, uh, check out uh, his site here, metabolicdiet.com. As you heard, he has um, many more, but I suppose that's the main one. I, I suppose the most current one yeah. where you can find out what's going on. Uh, with yeah, the we're going to we're going to be linking we're going to be linking a lot of the sites to the main one and then back again as well. Uh, it's just a matter of of, of you know I, I I'm kind of like a one man army. I, I do most of it myself, and, and I you know have other people that help me, but. Um, you know, eventually things get done. Right, right. All right, uh, Bill, are we ready for uh, going to the topic? Not a problem. Okay, um, our topic of the day, um, the ketogenic, ketogenic dieting and uh, which strength athlete it, it, this is more most appropriate for. And uh, the second part of the the, uh, the topics will be, uh, I would just like to discuss a little bit of the evolutions in power and strength training with with uh, Dr. Morrow just because, uh, again, of his his history and his success in, in powerlifting and so forth. But again, uh, to, to start off, um, again, the ketogenic dieting and, uh, and you know, what, what he thinks... That is most useful for which which strength athletes it would be most beneficial for. Well, first of all, I, I should probably correct you. For the last uh, since the 1960s, I've been working on not exactly the ketogenic diet, but what I call a phase shift diet. Now that involves a low carb component and then a higher carb, shorter, higher carb components. Um, it's it's really 
what I tried to do, and I used this myself when I was powerlifting, what I tried to do was to um, set up a diet that I thought was best for body composition and performance and, and health as well. And what I did is try to work on um, the, uh, the various hormones in the body, you know, cortisol, testosterone, growth hormone, IGF-1, insulin, etc., uh, and to help recuperation and to maximize, you know, again, body composition and uh, uh, muscle mass performance, etc. Now, what I what I did is set up a, a phase shift diet where a certain part of the week you're on a basically a low carb, high protein, uh, high higher fat diet, and uh, on certain times of the week a much shorter phase of a higher carb diet. And again, what I tried to do is to make the athlete fat adapted so that they um, depend more on fat, whether in, you know dietary fat or endogenous fat, as their primary energy source and didn't depend as much on carbs. And we did this by basically making it a five or six day low carb phase. Actually, there, there's an induction phase of about a couple of weeks where you stay low carb. Um, and then, again, introducing the uh, higher carb phase for a short period of time. Now, there's a reason for all this, and, and part of the reason, of course, is that I feel that doing this uh, helps to maximize testosterone, growth hormone, uh, and other anabolic factors, and then control insulin. Now, insulin, as you know, is a powerful hormone. Uh, most people know it as a storage hormone, which means that they basically, the more insulin you have, you know, the more fat you get. And of course, it also works on muscle cells and increases muscle cell size, increases glycogen levels um, in, in, in all cells. But um, if, you, if, if you're fat adapted, and, and my theory was to make someone so that they burn primarily fat, even up to and beyond what they normally would do uh, as exercise intensity increases, um, and build up what they call the, the, the fat droplets, the uh, uh, intramyocellular uh, triglycerides. The little fat droplets are in the muscle cells. Build those up so that they become a primary source of energy. Uh, but also, by using the phase shift, also increase the glycogen storage up to a point so that the athlete, for example, someone who's uh, not necessarily a bodybuilder, but it works for bodybuilding, works for power sports as well, but if you take an athlete who even, even on an endurance basis works on uh, utilizing the, uh, the fat mainly, but if you have to do a, a heavy sprint, you try and utilize the fat as much as possible and then you switch over to the glycogen uh, breakdown so you can use glucose, you know, forming lactate, etc. So the whole, the whole process for even a power lifter or even even a, a bodybuilder or, or a power athlete would be to help uh, increase energy levels while they're training, based on uh, consuming or utilizing fat as much as possible and using glycogen only for a short part of the training aspect. Um, right. And what and what happens here is that as you drop calories, for example, uh, you'll find that your body, being used to burning fat and using that as a primary fuel, the enzymes have all been sort of inducted. Um, you tend to utilize body fat more. So body composition improves as you drop weight. You maintain more muscle and lose more body fat. It, yeah, it's kind, now of, this kind is... of a lot to put in all at one time. Um, oh, no, I... It, I, if I can explain, I, I base the metabolic diet. It's basically three steps, okay? Uh, first step is, is uh, burning fat as a primary fuel. So you, all you do is you replace the carbs you're eating now with protein and fat. And you don't reduce the calories. For the first two weeks, you just basically try to switch over uh, to, to using uh, mainly fat as, as a fuel by not allowing carbs in your diet, or at least limiting them. Um, once you're fat adapted, and you, your, your body then depends mainly on dietary fat and, and body fat, not carbohydrates, or muscle protein, to produce the energy it needs. Okay, So you can cut down calories um, by cutting back on fat in the diet, the, the body remains fat adapted and keeps burning body fat off. And this is the business about uh, improving body composition while on the diet. Mm -hmm. But if you use the phase shift diet properly, and, and one of the things with ketogenic diets, which basically is a diet where most people just stay on very low carbs and it forms ketones. The ketones may or may not show, uh, show up in the urine depending on how well you utilize them and how long you've been on the diet, is that it's very hard to gain muscle mass on that kind of diet or gain mm -hmm. body weight. By using the phase shift diet and varying the higher carb phase uh, and the calories that you that you take in in that phase, you can actually use it to gain mass and then lose the body fat. You know, you know the old adage that bodybuilders that bodybuilders just do all the time: they bulk up and then and then cut down. Right. Mm -hmm. I well, I've used your diet on myself successfully and clients. Um, seen some mistakes. What would you say is the the most common mistake people have when when they they use your system? 
Well, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to say, but I think, I think probably the most common mistake is they overdo the carb phase of the diet. And, and it's set up to be, originally it was set up to be a five-day low-carb phase and a, and a, and a two-day higher-carb phase. So people would go on the five days, let's say once, they're, once they're, uh, they've gone through the first two weeks, they'd go on the five days and then for two days they'd pig out on carbs. And they'd find that uh, by the time Monday morning arrived, they were up like four pounds. Um, and they felt, you know, kind of uh, full. Uh, as if they were putting on body fat, et cetera. So what, what I do is, because every person has to adjust according to their own, you know, genetic uh, and, and uh, phenotypic uh, makeup. Um, so I have people experiment. I mean, they've got they've got every week is an experimentation phase. So if it's a five day, two day works for you, fine. You may you may find that the way your body reacts best is that you stay on the low carb phase most of the time, except for maybe just one meal that's higher carb. Um, so, you know, a lot of it depends on, and, and so I guess the, the mistake that a lot of people make is they don't temper the first time or second or third time that they go on the carbs and find, oh, geez, you know, I'm actually putting on weight in this diet, and it looks like I'm putting on body fat. Yeah. Gotcha. Lonnie, what, uh, what, what are your feelings on all, all these kind of things? I, I mean, obviously, the, the, the trend in bodybuilding is, has geared towards, you know, the whole idea of, you know, low carbs, high protein type of thing, certainly in a pre-contest mode. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, uh, it's amazing to me that in a lot of medical settings, you know, you still have people seriously attached to the high carbohydrate, low fat approach all the time, you know, sort of for, you know, many different diseases, for body weight control, all kinds of things. And um, But there are, in fact, medical schools, and you can even find some of these um, – some of the studies like on PubMed and whatnot where there are actually medical schools that are starting to incorporate and teach biochemistry courses sort of based on, you know, the value of consuming less carbohydrates, you know, low carbohydrates. And it's actually a great way to teach the different metabolic pathways and things like that because, as, as Dr. Pascali was saying, it's a, you know, you get induction of different pathways, different enzymes, and you really can get the body to adapt to become a better fat-burning machine, as it will, or even fat digesting machine for that matter but um and the cyclic approach i think is what's cool about it because you're refilling a muscle and uh, he pointed out genetic differences uh i had a grad student send me a, a, a paper just recently uh literally pointing out that you know there's genetic tests being developed now where you can see people who do better on low carbohydrate versus you know lower fat kinds of diets but again a lot of this stuff is moot because what we're talking about here are phases of the diet where you purposely refeed. And as somebody who's ectomorphic myself, this isn't very scientific, but I can tell you that I would really need uh, periods of some kind of carbohydrate refeed in order to feel full, you know, muscle bellies and feel strong and have some energy and things like that. But I, I imagine there are other people who do great on, you know, low-carb diets and, and uh, as Morrow said, you know, maybe a single meal or two would be enough to get them a little bit of glycogen and, and feeling good again, you know, so... Well, I think it was what Morrow did great in his book. I don't know if you've read it, but it, just the way you go in, Morrow, and, and describe that low-carb for everybody can be different, you know, and it's yep. an adjustment period. You know, I mean, for me, maybe it's 20 grams. For, for this guy over here that's running all the time, maybe it's 150 grams of low-carb. Um, Actually, I'm working. I'm working with some endurance uh, Olympic endurance athletes now uh, on the phase shift diet, and, and it's fascinating. Some, you know, I've always said that this diet would work for for even ultra endurance athletes if if they gave it a chance. And lately, uh, there's been some studies that have come out that have shown that even that athletes, for example, endurance athletes who uh, go in without full glycogen levels in their muscle actually train and and get more results out of their training than if they uh, um, you know carbohydrate load prior to, to training and even competing. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot to be learned. You know, I mean, I put out the concept uh, years ago, although it's come to the forefront more now, that the worst thing you, you could take after training is carbs. Now, the whole mantra is protein and carbs after training. But, you know, there's a whole business about insulin sensitivity. Uh, exercise increases insulin sensitivity from 24 to 48 hours. If you take a high-carb meal after exercise, it dampens this insulin sensitivity almost immediately. 
And, and the idea that insulin only only is involved with glucose or, or with starch or with glycogen uh, is, is a mistake because it's involved in, in many things. It's involved in protein metabolism, energy metabolism, uh, fat metabolism. Uh, and if you control insulin, you keep insulin sensitivity high after training for several hours, keep away from carbs, you actually will do much better as far as protein accretion and uh, muscle synthesis, uh, protein synthesis, muscle mass, etc., than you would if you loaded up after uh, with carbs and protein. You know, uh, I just that, wrote an that, article you know, a couple of months ago uh, on, for Charles, actually. It was about are you justifying your post-workout carbohydrates because a lot of people get in this kick that it's all over the sports nutrition community to consume carbohydrates immediately after, you know, glycogen synthase activity or you know, glute 4 and all this kind of stuff, all this action, all this metabolic activity is ideal to consume carbohydrates. But I think a lot of people, they sort of maybe get misinformed that, yeah, you can replenish glycogen stores more rapidly with that post-workout carbohydrate thing. But uh, a lot of that is about the, the, the rate and the pace. First of all, was your workout long enough and hard enough? Secondly, are you going to be back at it? in such a quick time frame that, you know, you have to take advantage of something like that. I mean, it depends on your goals and things, of course. But um, it's not just about I, – I think a lot of people think that it's about glycogen content and they feel like they have to go home. You know, some middle-aged guy works out for 45 minutes. He goes home and he feels, after he's reading a lot of this sports <laughs> nutrition stuff, that he has to pound 100 or 150 grams of sugar as soon as he gets home. And, you know, that's, that's not good advice. So you've got to think about no, your goals and whether or not you know, you're justifying that kind of thing. So. No, I agree with you 100%. I mean, along with glucose uptake, amino acid uptake, and uh, protein sense, all those things all increase after, after exercise. Again, if you use a lot of glucose, you go home and eat a cake after your workout, uh, you know, you're, you're <laughs> kind of uh, shortchanging yourself. I, I use the, the, uh, the analogy uh, that uh, a premature ejaculation, you know, you're going too fast, too quick, and it's just not getting anywhere. <laughs> So you know, as in, you know, if you do the the carbohydrate thing after training, uh, insulin sensitivity decreases rather rapidly, as does amino acid uptake, protein synthesis, and importantly, the use of fatty acid as a primary fuel. After exercise, the body prefers to use um, um, fat as its as its fuel. Uh, as it tries to build up glycogen levels. Now, if you stop it from building up the glycogen levels, the insulin sensitivity stays around for a long time, and I think it's very beneficial for any athlete uh, to do that. Morrow, you, you mentioned phase shift diet, and you, you, you did give some, uh, some detail on it, but I, I wonder, for people listening, and I know we have people listening who, who may not be familiar, would you give us just kind of the quick three-minute kind of like quick start guide to how you would start that diet, and then maybe if there's time to how you modify it from there. Well, the first thing you do is you isolate yourself You isolate yourself from your family and friends yes, for okay, at least good. two weeks because they won't understand. Yes. Uh, first two weeks, you should limit your carbs to about 30 grams a day. Um, and you can take the 30, 30 grams anytime. It's up, it's up to you, whatever is comfortable. A lot of people will go low-carb, uh, uh, nil-carb all day long, and then at night we'll have a, bowl, a small bowl of ice cream or something. You know, whatever whatever works for you. Um, keep that up for two weeks. You'll go through a rough four or five days because your body needs the carbs at this point because you're carboholic. You gotta get rid of that addiction. Um, and, and then go on after the two week phase, then you can go on to a short, uh, carbohydrate phase. And most people feel that uh, they don't really even need it after two weeks. You know, I always tell people when, when, when they're starting to diet, you know, there are essential fatty acids. There are essential amino acids, but there's no essential carbs. So right. don't feel bad if you're not taking in many carbs. Your yeah. body will produce whatever carbs it needs from whatever you provide it. I mean, the body is amazingly adaptive. It will change its metabolism according to what's, I mean, to survive according to what's provided. So for the first two weeks, keep the carbs low. Again, a rough three or four or five days, depending on your, your phenotype and, and, and genotype. Um, and after that, start your, your cycling. And every week should be a discovery week. You should know when you're training, you know, when, when you're best able to train, when you feel the best, um, and you put it all together after that, uh, week by week. So, again, if you find you, you're trying to put on weight and then two days of, of, of increased carbs, et cetera, um, will do you well. 
if you find that you're trying to drop weight, but you're trying to maintain muscle mass, you want to lose body fat, you want to be the best you can be, regardless of the sport, pound for pound, you want to have maximum power, maximum performance, uh, at that point, you'll adjust the diet. And, and again, because you're experimenting every week, you will learn what works best for you. And, Marlo, and that's, that's really all there is to it to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to ask, too, because so that people don't get uh, kind of scared away when you say you're going to have a rough two or three or four days. Um, I, I've done this type of nutrition plan before and, and even very recently. And I never did have a rough uh, even day or two days. I just immediately feel better. And so Yeah, a lot of people do. That, like, yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. A lot of people do, but some don't. Uh, some. Okay. I, you were mentioning before the genetic testing. Uh, there are. You know, they're finding some genes now. The uh, uh, people are more adaptive or can adapt easier to to utilizing uh, fats and proteins rather than carbs. Uh, and some people, depending on you know some phenotypic differences, etc., um, will find that they have a rougher time. I do that just to make sure. You know, if they do go through sort of a, a tiredness and a fatigue over over a couple of days, sure. that they realize that it's normal. That's that's. What Yep. Some people go through and just, you know, tough it out and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. You know, another thing is I, I, I'm not sure if this is the place to say, but I've always said that meat is one of the best things you can have, red meat. And, you know, there's been a lot of bad press about red meat, you know, cholesterol, et cetera, and heart disease, et cetera. Um, I don't know if any of you caught the recent study that showed that basically it wasn't red meat that's the problem, it's processed meat. So, you know, sure. if you go to Wendy's, McDonald's, and all those places, uh, you're going to run into some problems with heart disease, et cetera, depending on, you know, what you eat, of course. Processed meat seems to be the culprit rather than red meat. To me, meat is, is, is the best source of amino acids, much better than, you know, plant life, obviously. It's high in, in, in various vitamins like A, E, and, and B-complex. Vitamin B12 uh, is plentiful in meat, but you don't find that in vegetable products. Uh, meat, meat is loaded with iron, which is which is a, a, a very absorbable kind of iron. So I mean, it has a, a lot of a lot of good things for it. Uh, and on this diet, once you're fat adapted, meat be, just becomes one of the fuels. I mean, it's it's, it's a build up your body, obviously, but the body processes it and doesn't. Uh, for example, if someone goes on a diet, uh, and I've done this myself several times, check my cholesterol levels, etc., they're fine. Yeah, go ahead. Let me, let me just reiterate one of the things that Maro just said because I see this all the time and it's sort of a peeve of mine. When you hear someone really ripping on red meat, they will often launch into a tirade about hot dogs and bologna. So, they, <laughs> right, they blur the line about what red meat is. They're not thinking about round steak, you know what I mean, or, you know, lean hamburger and that kind of thing. They're, they'll immediately go into the most processed kinds of meats that they can imagine. So ask the question, just people who are listening, ask the question, you know, when someone says red meat, say, wait, what do you mean by red meat? Because they'll blur the line, and that's a problem. In the in circulation, the, the, the journal circulation, in the uh, May 17th issue of this year, um, there was a study where they gave people processed meat, um, uh, you know, hot dogs, that kind of stuff, and they found, or at least, at least people that ate those kind of foods, as against people that that made their own meats and you know didn't process it or eat it, the fast food joints and stuff, and they found that uh, there was a much higher risk of uh, cardiovascular disease and an increased risk of diabetes in people who ate the processed meat. Right, and you know what? I remember a study from a few years back where they showed increased brain cancer in adults who. You know, there was a, a correlation between processed meat, hot dog, and bologna intake and brain cancer in adulthood. And I look That's back right. in the no, 70s and thought. 80s, you know, and I think, oh, my God, I actually I think I ate a lot of bologna and hot dogs probably growing <laughs> up. Holy crap, you know. But but I suppose there are some things you can do post facto, too, but in any case, yeah, not but I mean, good. Yeah, you, you got you got to look at the, the kind of foods that the processed meats have. I mean, you know, first of all, there's a lot of salt. Right. Usually in the processed meats, nitrite preservatives they have to put in. I mean, anytime yeah. you eat a fast food, I mean, you got to look at the food and say, well, you know what? They're keeping this food around. They're, 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 they've got these uh, uh, all these stores they're sending it to. They got to be able to keep the food fresher somehow. They've got to yeah. add chemicals to it. They've got to add stuff to it that you wouldn't do in your own home. I, you know, people should take time and prepare the meals themselves. Unfortunately, we're in a society where you know we're so rushed. You know, you, you grab a you grab a, a, a and I hate, I hate to, to mention companies, but you know, you grab one of the fast food hamburgers or one of the fast food things, and you gorge in the French fries, and and that's it. You feel satiated, and you can go on working, but you're really doing yourself a lot of harm. Yeah, yeah. 
Hey, Mauro, just to throw another related concept out there, there is this, uh, there is this concept called the uh, lipid hypothesis that was created uh, or, or popularized by this Dr. Ansel Keys. And uh, the hypothesis, as I understand it, says that you eat saturated uh, uh, fat, which leads to higher cholesterol, which leads to heart disease. And uh, I wondered what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, again, you know, what I tell people on a diet is, is that your fats now become your fuel. You know, you're not depositing a lot of this into the arteries. You're not, you know, raising um, uh, LDL cholesterols or, you know, lowering HDL or, or doing any of that stuff. You know, my look at it is, first of all, it's pretty plain that if you're genetically predisposed to cardiovascular disease and you're, you're sensitive to cholesterol levels and that will lay down plaques and cause, you know, hardening of the arteries and atherosclerosis and, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, coronary artery disease, I think that, that it behooves you to check your levels on a regular basis and then uh, sort of tie them into the kind of diet you're following. I, I think that's important, but I think that's only important for the people who are gen genetically susceptible to these kinds of diseases. I think for the average person, especially going on, 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 on a phase shift or a low-carb diet, etc., um, I don't think you have these, these uh, bad cardiovascular diseases. I mean, even in a study I quoted a little while ago where they said that red meat really isn't the problem. It's, it's processed meat that's the problem. Um, the authors, and I remember this, said, well, look, hold it now. I'm not telling you uh, this is not a license to gorge on, on, on red meat, guys, because, you know, I might be sued here. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they have to put that qualifier in there because even though they're saying that red meat's fine, there are no adverse problems with cardiovascular, no adverse cardiovascular problems secondary to the use of properly prepared red meat, but there is with processed meat. They still have to put that in there and said, you know, don't eat too much because maybe, maybe all this last, you know, 40 years of, of scare tactics or 25 years of scare tactics, maybe there's really something to it. So I better watch my ass. Yeah, yeah, right. sure. Rob, I'm let me ask one more thing. Uh, when fat becomes the major fuel source, I'm just curious as, as to what kinds of uh, fats, Marl, that you sort of describe to people that they, they should be consuming. I mean, meat, whole eggs, I mean, um, oil, do you have oil preferences, things like that? Well, you know, I mean, I mean, the usual thing people say is eat healthy fats, you know. Yeah. So what are you going to do, eat 20 pounds of essential fatty acids a day? And, and that's that's what I'm saying. Your, uh, I mean, that's that, going to be your fat intake. You know what? Yeah. E even meat is not all saturated fat. There, there's monosaturated. There's almost as much monosaturated fat, for example, in pork as there is saturated fat. Absolutely. Um, I, I think you should keep away from trans fats. Obviously, I mean, there's a lot of research has shown the trans fats can lead to cardiovascular problems. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as the type of meat, I mean, the type of uh, type of fat, I think obviously, you know, if I was going to prepare a salad, I'd use olive oil. Yep. A flaxseed oil, you know, something, um, the omega-3, omega-6 mix is important, so I think you should use, you should take some of essential fatty acids. I think everybody should be on fish oil to a certain extent, unless you have okay. a problem with, uh, with, 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 with uh, uh, bleeding or blood clotting. Um, so, you know, obviously the healthy fats, the essential fatty acids, especially the fish oils, the flaxseed oil, um, are important. But I think it's also important to monosaturates, you know, the Mediterranean diet where they use a lot of olive oil, et cetera, which is healthy. And But don't keep away from saturated fat unless unless your blood work shows that eating saturated fat, because your phenotypic uh, differences, leads to high level, very high levels of cholesterol. I think I think that's got to be a warning sign when your cholesterol levels are, you know, 100% above normal um, and your HDL levels are low, so you can't even say that the reason my cholesterol is high is because my HDL is high, which is good cholesterol, so don't bug me. Right. You know what? I want to add something along that same line. Is I have a familial cholesterol that's just very low. I mean, 160 total cholesterol, that kind of stuff. Now, mm -hmm. one of the things that's very interesting, and Phil uh, and I have been talking about this a little bit, uh, I've been doing some research with some grad students, and what we're looking at seems to confirm some of Steve Reichman's data down at Texas A&M that cholesterol may be a good guy for muscle growth. And this is very interesting concept. Oh, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. so, I mean, avoiding it. And like Phil and I were joking about, imagine putting this in a, in a pill, like in a supplement. Mm -hmm. But the truth is there are people with a phenotype, there are people with a genetic background who could take advantage of that. And I think I'm probably one of them. You know, I mean, low yeah. family cholesterol... Uh, why would I be avoiding whole eggs 
and red meat. You know, if it's if no, it, I, I, I agree. Might help and, you know, mass, you know. No, you're 100 percent right. And and look at if you look at just testosterone levels, bioavailable testosterone. Okay, um, most of the studies show that it's increased by diets that are high in fat and protein. Okay, they're decreased in people or in in, in, vegan, in vegan diets, yep. as is IGF one, which is decreased in vegan diets. Um, they're decreased in diets that are high in carb. They're even decreased in soy protein. If, if you substitute soy protein for meat protein, you'll find your bioavailable testosterone goes down. So, you, and, and this this study was done. Um, I'm trying to remember. Um, uh, they they I think about almost 10 years ago uh, there was a study done in which uh, they substituted soy protein for meat protein and found that there were decreased levels of testosterone in. in the, and I can't remember how many men were on the diet. I have to look it up. But they they were healthy healthy males. Um, so this shows you that you know you can't really get away if you're an athlete that you shouldn't really get away from from uh, meat protein. Um, I remember another study that said. Um, um, hold on now. Uh, that showed that uh, going on a on a fat-free diet actually decreased um, uh, muscle muscle gains, and I'd, I'd have to find that that study as well. Anyways, there's a, there's a lot of evidence that shows that. Uh, uh, that uh, free fatty acids, for example, increases androgen precursors in the body. I mean, so if you put all these studies together, you can see that keeping away from fat, saturated fat, and, and any kind of fat is not good for you if you're an athlete. And, and right. not, just you know what? With, not just with testosterone. If I can just add, there are, I, I've actually even written some lay articles like on testosterone.com and, and some of those websites. And I actually did many lit reviews, and there are multiple studies suggesting about a 15% drop in testosterone, for example, if you don't get enough uh, saturated fat. Like if you, go up, you put people on a very low-fat, very high-fiber diet, they'll drop about 15% in testosterone. So is that enough to make you, you know, shrink away versus huge? No. We're talking about changes in the physiological range, but over time that's going to have an impact on, you know, you would think on mood or recoverability or things like that. So. And yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and it's not just testosterone, insulin growth factor, and the isoform of insulin growth factor, mechanical growth factor, which is a local uh, growth factor in muscle cells, are decreased in, in, in certain kinds of diets and increased in, in diets that are higher in fat and protein. But I think, the, I think one of the studies you were referring to was published about five years ago in which they found that uh, androgen levels decreased uh, um, with a, a low-fat, high-fiber diet. Is that, is that one of the studies? Yeah, yep. Yeah. yeah, I think it was about five years ago. But, you know, again, uh, I can look this up, but that's not what we're doing here. Um, yeah. It just shows that, that there's a lot, of, a lot of misinformation out there, a lot, of, a lot of things that people take as being, you know, mantra that really uh, is, it's not right. It's not, it's, not the, uh, it's not the right way for an athlete to, uh, to eat. Well, and I mean, on the hormone issue, I think a problem people have is, uh, you know, studies and supplements and diets, everybody looks at, you know, uh, this or that gives you an increase of 5% over an hour and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the fact is that it's the long term. It, you know, it's where you're at days and weeks in a row, not where you're at in an hour. I mean, testosterone and whatnot doesn't do anything to you in an hour. You know, it's where no. you're at all day long, all month long. And, you know, I've seen it time and time again on boards and clients and people dropping their fat levels low and they feel like hell, the diet goes to crap, they look like crap, and most of that is, yeah, what you said. I mean, it's just, it's, your hormones are directly tied into how, in, into fat intake. I mean, and it yeah. can't be disputed, really. No, I agree with you. And, and the other thing, too, is that you have to be very careful about the, about the literature because, um, and I find this, I find this actually uh, laughable. Um, they'll do a study in which they'll find, uh, for example, that the testosterone levels, uh, bioavailable testosterone was elevated in these athletes after they did this and this and this. And they'll say, great, here we show that testosterone levels are elevated, therefore this is the way to train. Then another study will come out and say, well, we found that after this kind of training, the levels of testosterone after training dropped dramatically. But then they say, this is a good thing because that means the muscles are taking up the, the testosterone and using it for building muscle. Well, which one is it? Is yeah. it high levels yeah. <laughs> in the body or is it low levels in the body? So you have to be very careful with interpreting the literature uh, and, and, and taking, for example, one study and saying, well, this is definitive, you know, as we repeated over a number of studies, and they have to put it in context. And, uh, you know, right. yep. you just have to use your, your God-given sense, and, and over the years you, you accumulate a certain amount of knowledge so you, you can kind of interpret these for yourselves and use the studies uh, in, in an appropriate manner to, to show what you want to show.
Sure. Educate yourself so you can, you know, formal education is going to help, obviously, people look for a consensus in the literature and understand. Actually, one of those low-fat, high-fiber studies that showed reduced androgens is actually saying that was a good thing. It's right exactly what you're saying, Marlo, because they were saying, yeah. oh, this yeah. is good because it would reduce your prostate cancer risk, which is a whole other can of worms. <laughs> you know? So they were but saying that was a good thing. It's also good for the muscle. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, I yeah, be careful with the interpretation. i got to agree. All right. Um, just to, we're kind of running out of time here, and I want to, we have about another ten, fifteen minutes, and I just want to. I, I think it would just be very interesting for uh, listeners to hear Marl's interpretation of how, or you know, the evolutions of of power and strength training as it is um, in powerlifting and so forth. I mean, I think we all know what we're talking about. I mean, you know, equipment use and all this type of thing. Because of course, you, uh, as you said, you retired, and I think you said eighty four. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So you know, I mean, you you were you kind of competed in the days before, kind of all this. Uh, the, the support gear and everything kind of kind of blew out, um, you know, and got really turbocharged. So, what, what do you think about all these types of things? Well, you know, I mean, people say, you know, look at the records today. I mean, here's a you know 112 pound guy squatting 2,300 pounds, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, they're saying, well, obviously, obviously, man has progressed. This is evolution, and I'm going, you know, you poor deluded fools. What are they using? You know, uh, using a, a turbo lift to uh, to do your squat is not exactly squatting. Um, so you, you got to look at the equipment. I mean, back in the days when I when, when I competed, I never wore a squat suit. I wore wrap uh, knee wraps and I wore a belt. That was it. Right. Never wore a bench shirt. Never never wore anything. Now um, nowadays, if you want, if you see the power, especially some of the not, not as much the IPF, which which has some rules, although they allow a lot of the equipment. But some of the other organizations, I mean, they're using triple iron-bound, you know, vests that they can't possibly get down the bar down their chest unless there's at least 1,200 pounds on it. You know? And then it springs, springs up again because they've got, you know, truck jacks on it and, and it's going out. Um, I disagree with all that. You know, I mean, I, I agree with wearing wraps because I think the wraps help the knees. Um, and I agree with a belt. Because as you take a deep breath, you hold it, it makes you sort of more rigid as you're going down in the squat and more rigid in, in the deadlift. And I think it helps as far as, you know, back strain and, and, and causing problems down the line. I lifted heavy. I lifted with just those two things. Um, and my, my workouts, I mean, you know, this, I'm not sure if this is the place to put it again. Um, my workouts would last four hours. Now, everybody says, you know, don't do more than 50 minutes. Well, what the hell are you doing with 50 minutes, you know? Are you going out to run uh, an ultra-endurance marathon? Are you going out to be a bodybuilder? You know, my four-hour workouts consisted of very heavy training. I would do the squat, I would do the deadlift, and I would do the bench. Then I would do some ancillary exercise, and I'd go back and repeat my squat routine again and going maximum all the time. But I would only do this every 10 days, so obviously I had to give my body a chance to recover. So, you know, I mean, there's, there are so many variations that, that work for different people that it's silly for people, and I hear this all the time, you shouldn't work out more than an hour. You know, I mean, beyond that, you're wasting your time. Well, obviously, it depends on what you're working for and what you're trying to achieve. So you, you actually do only like one or two workouts every week, you're saying? No, I only did a, I did a workout every five days. Okay. Uh, I did a, a lighter workout, and then the heavy workout would be a minimum four-hour workout. And I would okay. really push push the poundages. Um, I'd go up maximum squat using about oh, 10 to 12 sets. Max on the bench, 10 to 12 sets. Max on the deadlift, 10 to 12 sets. Then I'd do bent over rowing, and I'd use I'd use straps, and I'd go up to 500 pounds in bent over rowing. Um, and I'd do uh, uh, incline benches, and I would do some arm work, and then I'd go back and repeat the whole squat routine. So this would be my routine on, on Monday. I don't recommend that people do that. It just worked for me. <laughs> now, did, you, did you come into that like by design, or was that kind of like a fluke that you fell, fell into that kind of routine? No, I, I, oh, I mean, I'm always, always questioning my training. I mean, right from when I started, you know, what worked for me, what didn't work for me. And I coached a lot of people, too. So I, I could kind of see, you know, especially style and form and, uh, and uh, helping them with their diet. And, uh, you know, they would train. I had a lot of training partners. Um, and, and everybody's a little different, but they kind of, kind of was important in powerlifting to lift heavy weights. So I would see people uh, thinking they were powerlifting you know, squatting with 85 pounds and then increasing it to, yeah, increasing it to 90 pounds and then going up to a max of 95. You know, I mean, uh, 
there's mullets in every sport, obviously. <laughs> but you know, I think I think any sport, whatever it is, you know, you take people's advice and and you mold it, mold it with some intelligence and some insight to fit what you're doing. Right. Now, going back to what we were talking about before, I I, I suppose then you're you're not you're kind of dismayed then at the 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 trajectory of competitive powerlifting as it exists today. Oh yeah, I am. I I don't think they should be using all that all that ancillary equipment. I mean, who's actually doing the lifting? I mean, give me a break, okay? 100, 165 pounders not going to bench 480 pounds. Right. Uh, unless they're unbelievably gifted. Um, 165 pounder is not going to squat 1,000 pounds unless they got some support. You know, I mean, right. this, this, I mean, I've seen guys uh, with these denim shirts, okay? These denim shirts are thicker than any denim I've ever seen on pants, and they will not rip. They needed... And this is, this is not a lie, because I saw this. This guy needed 600 pounds to be able to touch his chest. Oh, my God. Well, right? they measure a lot of those shirts. Yeah. They measure a yeah. lot of those shirts and on what they call stopping power, and, they, and, and they, they actually judge that on how much weight is needed just to get the bar to the chest. And they yeah, rate shirts. Yeah. You know, like that, yeah. that shirt's a 600-pound shirt. That's a 700-pound shirt. And they're not talking about what, what, what they're getting out of it. They're talking about what weight is needed on the bar just to get the bar to the chest. Well, I'm waiting for a super flyweight to bench a 1,000. <laughs> now, because my whole thing is, and I have to discuss this a lot with, like, Lonnie in the past, um, I, I don't believe, actually, that, that human strength, like, maximal human strength has, has imp- like, you know, increased that dramatically over the last 30 or 40 it, it, years. It, it, I, I just, there's no way. Look at the raw lifting. Look at the raw, raw lifting. I mean, and, and if you want to take a lift where you can't get a lot of support, you can get some, the deadlift. If you look at the records in the deadlift, I deadlifted 722 at 165. There's not too many people at 165 without all the apparatus that can deadlift that today. So no. there hasn't been a lot of change in strength. Yeah. It's the apparatus. It's like the pole vault. When they brought out the fiberglass pole vaults, these guys went five feet higher. Now, it wasn't because all of a sudden, overnight, these guys gained 50% more strength. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the... the you, you're... It's really important. I mean, I make a distinction in my second newsletter. I mentioned my newsletters. Uh, I think you'd be interested, you know, to have a look at the first two. The first one's a small one. The second one's rather large. And I try to put a lot of science into it, um, a lot of evidence-based stuff. And I mentioned, you know, some of the genetic uh, differences, uh, you know, the, 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 imp- the improvements in various sports and what they're due to. You take swimming, for example. Those uh, skin-tight, uh, uh, I don't know, cod liver oil-covered swimsuits, um, <laughs> where, where, you know, they're, they're, one, they're one with the water, okay? Um, they were getting, I mean, every meet you saw, there were world records broken. Until now, they've, they've disallowed some of them uh, lately. Right. But, uh, you know, it shows you the equipment's a lot. The natural strength, I think if the person had the dedication and spent enough time uh, working at it and, and, and was you know, serious about it, you know, strength levels haven't changed a lot. As a matter you of fact, know, I, I like what you said about the whole because I mean, obviously, the three power lifts—that's the one that um, is benefited the least um, from from this equipment. Although, you know, in the last few years, of course, there's now even been a lot more advances in equipment for deadlifting, but um, but certainly, it still is the least that's affected by this this equipment technology. And as you say, um, if you look at you know the the, the best deadlifts of you know, 25, 30 years ago, and, you know, the, the heavy, super heavyweight guys deadlifting, you know, like cresting around, you know, 850, 900 pounds, um, you know, I mean, the best in the world are still yeah. kind of hovering around that, you know what I mean? And, and But you look at, like you say, the bench or the squat, I mean, you know, you, I mean, I mean, the, you look at guys who are like the, the best, you know, um, setting records at 700 pounds, like, you know, 12, 15 years ago. Um, right. There was only two or three guys who were doing that, and they were still using equipment. Now it's like every second guy in every gym now is benching 800 pounds. So, Robert, have, have you heard of, have you heard of Hermann Gorner? Yes, uh, the, the German. Yeah. But a hundred years ago. Yeah. This guy deadlifted 700 pounds with one finger, using yeah. one finger. <laughs> okay. He deadlifted with two, with two hands. He deadlifted well over 800. The guy weighed about I think he weighed about 220, 230. There's nobody today, raw, is going to match this guy. So, I mean, it's, it depends. See, the other thing I think people confuse is the number of people introduced into the sport. For example, uh, if hockey was only practiced in South America, or I should say Central America, in Mexico, 
uh, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't have a lot of pool to, to take the best hockey players out of. But as more people play hockey, the people who are naturals, the people who are genetically inclined to hockey, plus the time that they spend practicing hockey, they may start when they're two, three years old, uh, produces these great hockey players. And this, I think, is, is common with any sport. Now, powerlifting has increased in, in, in popularity to some extent, but not a lot. Even It was pretty popular even 25, 30 years ago. So sure. I don't think you know, you're going to get more of a genetic pool there. I was going to say, if you look at the sport of Olympic weightlifting, the, the totals today are actually less than they were 25 years ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But I the other thing, of course, is ergogenic age, you know. I mean, the exactly. anabolic steroids. Exactly. With the drug testing, is less used, although they're still used, um, than there was uh, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, or 60s even. I mean, in my, in my mind, the use of testosterone and anabolic steroids started in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. So all, all these yeah. people figure, well, the first time it appeared was in the early 1950s, you know, when the Russian weightlifters were found to be using testosterone. And then uh, Ziegler got in there and made uh, uh, Danibol, uh, you know, slight change in testosterone so it could be used orally. And from then on, people started using the stuff, and mainly in bodybuilders and power sports first, and now into the other sports. It's interesting to realize that back in the 70s and 80s, the amount of drugs that were being used by, for example, bodybuilders was unbelievable. I mean... I've had personal experience watching somebody uh, swallow one bottle of Danabol each meal. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay, wow. that's 100 tablets each three times a day. And this on top of probably 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams a week of injectables. Shit. Now you take bodybuilders <laughs> nowadays, of, for example, the Mr. Olympia. That's hard to oh, oh, trust me. Some of the, some of the, you know, don't forget, I was heavily involved in drug testing and stuff like that, and talking to athletes, and you know, I was, I was in, in, in the sport as well. Um, some of the, um, some of the uh, Olympia athletes, bodybuilding athletes, and, and even ones, some of the top level ones, anyways, they would take in a month, let's say prior to a contest, what the average male would produce in a lifetime. Um, you find that hard to believe, I know, because people think, oh, these people are using 100 milligrams of this, 5 milligrams of that, 10 milligrams of that. Forget it. You know, some of them go as high as 10,000 milligrams of anabolic steroids a week. Good God. Um, yeah. So you got to be careful, you know, how you judge, you know, where the athletes. And I think in Olympic lifting, they probably used more, they were stronger, it gave them that, that benefit. And now, when maybe they're not able to use as much, they're very careful about drug testing these people, and more importantly, out-of-contest drug testing. So even though they can't catch things like genetic manipulation and all that kind of stuff, they can catch the usual things. Right. Unfortunately, I think the history of anabolic steroids has sort of created this long history and this mindset amongst a lot of strength athletes that more is better, whether it's supplements or drugs or whatever, because it's essentially true from an efficacy standpoint, you know, that the more androgens you take, you know, the the bigger you become, instead of dabbling around with little five milligram this and that, you're taking grams. I mean, you don't measure testosterone in grams. You measure protein in grams, you know. Yeah, I know. These people measure milligrams. testosterone. I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you, I, okay, I won't mention names, but I saw this one bodybuilder, and he looked like an average guy, okay? He had his clothes on, of course, and, you know, I'm looking at him, and I'm saying, this guy's not a bodybuilder, okay? I mean, he's not, he's, not, he's not a top-level bodybuilder. Three weeks later, I couldn't believe it was the same guy. Three weeks. Three weeks. He shut himself up in his room most of the time with his paraphernalia. I didn't even train that much. Wow. So these guys obviously were very genetically susceptible to the action of these drugs. Well, this not is also what we would like I've to seen say. people use a lot of drugs and not show much improvement at all. Yeah, and this is what I'd like to say also about just kind of how this relates to something you were saying a few minutes ago. I think, I think you know, as, as it is in powerlifting and, you know, pure strength sports and so forth, I think the, the art of the actual training is being lost to a degree because so many athletes are, are relying on certain, you know, different things that, you know, aren't pure training, and whether it be the equipment or the drugs or so forth. And, and like you say, I mean, you know, it, it can, you know, wonderful things can be achieved just just through consistency of training and, and you know, you know uh, know-how of training. Right. I think that's lost because, like you say, in my opinion, and, and like, again, I've talked about this a lot with Lonnie and stuff, in my opinion, um, you know, just the, the absolutes of human performance as it relates to strength have not really improved as nearly as much as people 
might think they have in the last 20 or 30 years because um, you take all these factors away from it and and I think you would still see numbers that are marginally better or in some cases as Charles might have said even worse than they were in years past no I agree with you 100% I think I think you're absolutely right when you say the training is really important because you know, when I went through, you know, the many years of training that I did, I was constantly working on my training, the regimen, what worked best, you know, and, and you know, I would I would go on, on in binges of doing different things, you know, like 100 squats per rep, I mean, I mean 100 squats per per set, or one squat per set, you know, I would vary it quite a bit to see what worked best for me, and, and of course, it's really important, the training and the nutrition, I don't mean, I, I mean basic nutrition, just what you're eating, you know, your, your day-to-day habits, getting enough sleep. To me, that stuff is much more important than anything else. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, guys, I guess that uh, wraps it up pretty much for today. Are we doing um, – Phil, do we have that uh, – the person yeah, who won that. Our, our contest? So this is our yeah. winner, right? Yep. Yeah. I uh, will let it roll right now. Hi. My name's Ken. I wanted to call in with my nutrition story about uh, – I've been working out uh, about three years, and – a year and a half ago, the beginning of 2009, I, you know, really buckled down and, and looked at my diet, and I, you know, measured my metabolic, my basal metabolic rate, and and uh, based on my uh, exercise uh, routine, you know, three days a week, weightlifting, and and uh, I I had come up to a uh, uh, an amount of calories I needed to take in each day. I think it was like 3,400 3, calories or so. And so I figured out what I need to eat for the week, and I bought it, and, and I kept on that system for a year, and I was did really well. I mean, I gained gained strength and uh, some, some, some muscle size. And the beginning of this year, I had thought to myself, well, maybe... You know, I want to condition, have like a better conditioning. I like, I really wanted to see my abs by the summer, which is really kind of silly, but I don't know. That's what I wanted to do. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to reduce my uh, calories. You know, so I, you know, cut out milk. I was drinking a lot of milk, and so I was down to eating uh, a pound of meat a day and some vegetables and some rice and. I saw, and so I was doing that. I was losing some, you know, some fat. And I saw a uh, personal trainer, and he said, you know, just eat the meat and the vegetables for two weeks, and you should really, you know, see some results. So I did that, and I was getting, like, weaker and weaker. I did this for two weeks, and by the end of the second week, I look at, look at myself in the mirror, and I see, like, a lot of flab, and I'm weak. And I'm thinking, geez, you know, What's going on here? So I looked at my calories, and I was I was eating way, like, not enough calories. It was, uh, hold on, what the hell happened there? It was, uh, I was eating, like, a 1,000 calories a day, it seemed like. I, I think that's what it was. So I said, you know, F this. I'm just going to, you know, go back to my regular routine, and, and since I did, I mean, I started eating, <laughs> eating some weight gain shakes, and I just got a gallon of milk, and I ate, drank that over a weekend, and I, you know, immediately, you know, felt the difference. I was stronger, and and uh, and uh, things got, you know, better for me. So the, the story, the lesson I learned was eat enough calories, right? I, I think, yeah, I think it stopped. Yeah, that might All be right. good. So. All right. Anyway, I guess we'll take care of that. And we'll, uh, anyway, the person who's listening to that, you won. <laughs> yeah, Ken, I believe. Congratulations, right? Yeah. Nice. In the basics, he, he found out he was screwing up and went way too low on calories and starved himself and he got weak and felt bad about himself, blah, 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 blah. Uh. And he had to back in and got big and strong again and realized that, hey, it's good to be big and strong. Well, actually, what, what, one thing that he said was about you know I I, I wanted to uh, to do more ab work. Was that ab work? 
You know, this, this whole business, you know, the controversy about targeted fat loss, you know, if you work a certain muscle or if you put uh, uh, some spa treatment on it or you massage it or you apply wraps or something or you just visualize the fat away from one part of the body, everybody thinks that that's a real myth. But in fact, there's been a study that showed that, it, that, the, local mu- that the local fat tissue overlying muscle actually is more active than, than fat tissue anywhere else in the body when you exercise that body part. So doing crunches and stuff like that and making sure that, you know, you're doing abdominal work uh, if you want to get a six-pack, actually adds to the whole diet and exercise thing. Right. It's wow. not going to get rid of a giant beer gut, but it is going to help. We talked about that, I think, uh, a couple of months ago. Remember, Charles? Yeah. 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 I, 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 think, I think, as a matter of fact. I, I got rid of my beer gut really easy. I switched to wine. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Worked yeah. really well. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, um, there it is, and congratulations to our winner. I will... Uh, Take care of that. Anyway, um, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Mahal Pasquale, and uh, for spending time with us. I know we're, you're on the road there, so we do appreciate it. We do appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. It's nice talking to you guys. Yeah, thank you very much, Mom. Okay, thank All you. All right, guys. Well, I guess uh, we'll, we'll talk to you yeah, again next week. Bye bye. Bye. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the donate button at www.ironradio.org and make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, So please visit uh, the website. Click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got t-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. Take care. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.